Please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. As we continue in the series in 2 Corinthians, we're going to look today at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, and it is not a misprint in your bulletin. It goes to chapter 9, verse 5. <laughs> uh, it's a long text here, but I think uh, God has something that he wants to teach us today in this text faithfully to us. So would you please stand with me out of respect for the authority of God as he speaks to us through the scriptures. And I will add, this is a long text. So if you need to sit, nobody's going to judge you. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there... It is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but has been, tra- but has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. 
Now, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove vain in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated, to say nothing of you, for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Let's pray. Father God, you who are most merciful and kind, give to us now a word from your Holy Spirit and guide us into all truth in living out your gospel message. Magnify your son's glory that we may partake and share in this glory as the body of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in case you weren't paying attention, this is a very long text. <laughs> Sometimes there are passages in the Bible that it's, that it's best to, to slow down and, and kind of carefully unwind one verse at a time. A sort of a, a single tree we look at over here and then another single tree over there. Uh, but other times, it's better to, to gain some altitude and just kind of fly over the whole forest to see the shape and contours. In the case of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, this is a forest text. <laughs> this is a forest text. If I was to kind of drop in and preach uh, only the first paragraph this week and then the next one the next week, I would actually be doing damage to what, what Paul's intent is here. Now, that said, next week, just so you know what's kind of coming around the curve, next week I do want to step back and look at a few of the, of the single trees, okay? And some of these single trees are going to help us understand a little bit of the kind of the nature of Christian giving that happens in this, in this text. But today we're going to just kind of fly over, and we're going to see particularly that these two chapters are not, in fact, chiefly about giving. This text is not about giving. Paul's main concern here is not that Christians give money to their local church. So your wallets are safe this morning. <laughs> I, I will not be passing out uh, pledge cards today for a new capital campaign after this text. But if this is not Paul's main point, and, and we often come to this text and, and kind of think it is, what is Paul doing here? What is Paul's main overarching point that he's getting at? What, even more importantly, is the spirit of God saying to his church, through this text, 
I, I think you'll find, uh, like I did, that it's something quite surprising. It's a little bit unexpected, at least it was for me. So let, let's first orient ourselves to the two chapters, just to kind of get our bearings here. Um, in chapter 8, beginning verse 1 through 6, Paul tells the Corinthians that they should give as the Macedonians have given. What's, what's this all about? Paul, Paul's actually drawing on previous communication that appears in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. There, he speaks of how there's a crisis in the church of Jerusalem, and, and evidently a crisis of, of kind of some kind of great poverty, perhaps related to famine. We see this even in um, the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 11, at the very end, the last verses beginning in 27, Luke records, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul, who we also call Paul, right? So Paul here, we see in Acts, was chosen to take up a collection from the Gentile churches to help assist the Jerusalem church, the Judean church. And then in 1 Corinthians, one of his previous letters to the Corinth church, there in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul declared his intent and asked the Corinthians to participate in this collection. Now here in 2 Corinthians, maybe a year later, perhaps, Paul now indicates that the Macedonians, the neighbors to the north, have done this. Then... In verse 7 through 15 of chapter 8, Paul essentially comes, after saying what the Macedonians did, he essentially says, Corinthians, turn in your pledge card. Turn it in. Make, make right what you promised. But he does this with great kind of rhetorical flourish, and he carefully weaves a web around them by the end of it that they're, that they're just kind of caught, and they realize, yeah, they have to turn in their pledge card. <laughs> uh, there's no way out. Then in verse 16, all the way through chapter 9, verse 5, Paul basically tells them that he's sending a group of people to help them complete the promise. In other words, He's holding them accountable. He's holding them accountable to fulfilling this promise that's made to the Jerusalem church. And then in the remainder of chapter 9, which we're going to look some at next week, uh, Paul reflects simply on how God is the one who, who works grace in us to make all of this happen. That none of this giving would have happened without this grace of God that works deep down into our hearts. Now, let's, let me be honest. Particularly chapter 8, 1, all the way through 9, verse 5. These, these are exhausting two chapters. Paul just goes on and on and on and on, basically saying the same thing. Uh, 
That's, that's part of the point. That's part of his rhetoric here. That he's just trying to almost just wear down their defenses. He's trying to kind of wear them out so that they get to this point that they really kind of grapple with what's kind of really at stake in this situation. And what's that? Well, it's not giving. It's not giving that's at stake, Paul shows. Instead, it's love. It's love. It's love for God's church worldwide with the Jerusalem church as kind of the preeminent example. See, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is not principally, as I've said, about giving money or, or tithing to your local church. That's not what consumes Paul here. He's, he's not some kind of traveling preacher who's just looking to get another little church to uh, cough up all its savings. Instead, Paul wants the Corinthians to step outside of themselves. He wants them to step outside of their personal concerns. He wants them to step outside of their local church concerns and instead recognize that they are part of something much, much bigger than themselves. And the Spirit of Christ wants us to grapple with that as well. So Paul's first step toward, toward moving toward this goal, showing this, is in the very opening of chapter 8. Look at verse 1 through 4, where he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. See, Paul begins, he begins by reminding the Corinthians that they're not the only church that God is working through. God is also working through the suffering in the poor Macedonian church. Paul's likely referring to the church in Philippi and in Thessalonica, which if you were to kind of look on a map, you'd see Corinth down on the bottom near the Aegean Sea, and, and Macedonia is up north along the coast of the Aegean Sea. Paul is referring to this suffering that they're going through. And we see a lot of this uh, reflected in the letters that Paul sent to the Philippians and the Thessalonians. For example, Paul states in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, a, a marvelous verse that you should know when Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. All through Philippians, you have that theme of suffering. But back in in 2 Corinthians 8 now, 
Paul indicates that in the midst of this affliction that the Macedonians are experiencing, in the midst of that, God uses their affliction to raise up a concern in their hearts. And and that concern is oriented to giving to the saints abroad. He says that their affliction and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth, a wealth of uh, generosity, the ESV has. Generosity. Now, in, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, what the ESV renders as generosity there is perhaps more naturally rendered as single-mindedness or simplicity, or even you could translate it as sincerity. This is very important because this, this word here is a key word that weaves through the book of 2 Corinthians. It begins particularly in chapter 1, verse 12. Hear what Paul writes here, and then, and then keep in mind what he just said about the Macedonians. He says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity, that's that same word, with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. So Paul is saying that he has this single-mindedness that rejects earthly wisdom, that makes no sense to earthly powers, and it's focused completely on the task God has given him to do. Then back now in 2 Corinthians 8, he uses the same language for the Macedonians, saying that their affliction leads to a wealth of this single-mindedness, this wealth of simplicity, this, this is staggering. The affliction that the Macedonians experience led to those believers kind of cultivating out of their poverty, out of their suffering, they cultivated a single-mindedness, a simplicity that reflects not an earthly wisdom, but instead reflects the grace of God. But what's more, this single-mindedness resulted in a clear focus on the church around the world. Now, when I'm afflicted, when I'm suffering, the world kind of tends to collapse in on Michael. But not the Macedonians. Look at verse 4. In the midst of all this, begging us, they beg us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They're looking out. They're not looking in. In the midst of their suffering, they're looking out. This this kind of single-mindedness, this simplicity of the Macedonians makes no sense in a world governed by power and money, does it? If, if I was in the Corinthian church at this moment, I, I would be feeling really uncomfortable as Paul's telling us this. In, in a backhanded way, Paul is saying to them, Corinth, what, what is your single-minded focus? 
Is it also relieving the saints who suffer in the body of Christ? Is it also the the churches around the world? Or is it simply your local place, your needs, your aspirations, the the success of you or, or the success of your kids and your grandkids? He then tells them to complete their job and give to the relief of the churches. And, and at stake is not simply, as I've said, it's not simply they're, they're giving up money. What's at stake is instead proving to the world that the body of Christ is indeed their single-minded focus, that their love for Christ's body outweighs every other allegiance and priority. Look at verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. The the love Paul refers to is, is their love for the church, is their love for the churches of the globe. He reiterates this again near the end of his plea in verse 24, the very last verse of chapter 8. After, after going through this long-winded thing of basically saying, I'm, I'm sending people to check up on you, he ends by saying, so give proof before the churches of your love. Give proof. They're giving us the proof of their love. Now, this is 2 Corinthians. What did Paul talk about in 1 Corinthians? Chapter what? Oh, wait, let's, oh, come on. Be, be with me here. Chapter what? 13, yes. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul speaks to the Corinthians about what love is. I can't help but think that that is in the back of their mind as they're hearing, prove your love to the churches. We think of 1 Corinthians 13 often as, uh, you know, I'm going to love Sandy and Sandy's going to love me. We're going to get along together. But here the context of Paul thinking about the the global church, when he says love is patient and kind, love does not envy other churches or boast about my own church. It is not arrogant. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things amongst all the churches. Love believes all things amongst all the churches hopes all things for all the churches, endures all things for all the churches. The the giving of the Corinthian church becomes proof of their love for other churches. Proof that their own local congregation is not the center of their world. Proof that their team is, is not made up of just Corinthians, but includes all Christians, even those who are very, very different from them. You know, consider just this. Who, who was this money going to? Who was this money going to? The Judean church. That is Jewish Christians. 
And here, here Paul is calling the Greek churches of the Gentile world to give up their abundance for the sake of the Jews. This is, I mean, you feel the gravity. This is unheard of in the Roman world. This is not normal. This is not how Roman society works. And yet here, ethnicity and worship styles and nationalities and and local congregational concerns and even minor theological differences, all of that takes a back seat for Paul to the larger body of Christ. Paul wants them to to live in, in true fellowship with other churches. He makes this point very clear again in verse 13 and 14 of chapter 8. He says, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Now, when we hear fairness, all sorts of things come into our mind. But what Paul's saying here really is, think of fairness as a harmonious balance, that there's a balance between the churches, that there's a give and a take between the churches, that there's a love flowing both directions between the churches. His assumption is that they all have something to offer each other, and they all have something to learn from each other. Don't don't overlook what's happening here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Paul is is reorienting the entire Corinthian church to face outward to other churches instead of inward to their own church. They're to live in a, a larger kind of ecosystem of churches where Christ Jesus stands between all these churches, pulling them into fellowship with one another. So that you have, you have the, the Jewish church over here going through Christ to the Gentile church. And you have the church in Corinth going through Christ to the Galatian church, that Christ is pulling them all inward and then causing them all to look outward away from themselves. Each church directly affects the lives of others halfway around the world in Paul's vision. Each Church's gifts and abundance are are meant for blessing not simply their own congregation, but to be a lifeline to the others. You know, what we have here is real diversity and equality in action that the, the rest of the watching world is craving. But Paul shows that it is the church of God that that can embody this best. This is the glory of the church. This is real beauty, Paul is saying. There's no other institution on earth that can match such beauty and and giving to one another and, and building bridges between people who are outwardly very different in every way imaginable. And and in doing this, God's people, the the church, follows, follows their head. Look in verse 9. 
verse 9, Paul states, and we'll, we'll look more at this next week. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. We see here that, that a genuine love for the body of Christ flows from the Messiah himself. He, he who is rich simultaneously becomes poor so that the rest of his body through him becomes rich. And he does this, Paul says, through the ecosystem of these churches. And, and we'll, see, we'll see next week where all of that leads to at the end of 2 Corinthians 9. So, so how, how, do, how do we respond to this, what Paul's doing? How do we respond? Let, let's, think, let's think individually first, since we're Americans, and we think individually. Paul, Paul is painting a, a beautiful picture of the glory of the church in all of its differences coexisting together. He shows us that, that people like the Macedonians are single-minded on the glory of the church. Are we? Do, do you rise in the morning and consider the body of Christ? Is the church one of just kind of many spokes in the wheel of your life? Or or is the church the entire wheel that holds together these spokes? Do you, do you love Christ's body? Do you love Christ's body? And, and I don't mean, do you love Reformed Presbyterian evangelicals in the EPC? Though you should. I mean, do you love the church? even the parts of the body that, that maybe just make no sense to you and are very different from you. Let me offer just two ways to grow that love that Paul is so calling the Corinthians to. One, build bridges with, with Christians who are, who are different from you. Maybe different denominations or, or even different nationalities. Invite them over for dinner. Learn about their, their expression of Christianity. See, we, we need these different Christians, and Paul knows this. This is why he's trying to pull them to look outward. We need these different Christians in our lives to help us see things that we don't see when we're surrounded only by our own team. And, and what I'm preaching is not uh, soupy, kind of ecumenicalism, this is what the body of Christ is and the way it works and the glory of it as, as one is strong and one is weak in different areas and learn from each other. Second, study and pray. Pray for the persecuted church. Learn about those Christians who are suffering around the world who are, are defending the gospel on your behalf. And consider that. Those, 
those Christians who are being killed in North Korea right now, they are defending the gospel on your behalf. Those Christians in Cameroon who are being slaughtered are defending the gospel on my behalf. Pray for them. They're our brothers and sisters. And just like the Judean church desperately needed the Corinth church, those churches need us to pray as they as they walk through fire for us. But 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is not written merely to individual Christians, as you know. It's written to a local congregation. So here in these last moments, we, need to, we really need to reflect on, the, on just the corporate call in this letter. How, how do we at ECC respond to what Paul's saying here. Again, let me just offer three, three ideas. There could be many more. Um, first, we, we at ECC can hear these words of Paul and, and grow in recognizing that evangelical community church is not the only church in town. We are not, in fact, the only good church preaching the gospel. God is working in wonderful and mighty ways through many churches in Cincinnati that we get to fellowship with together and run this race together with. And that, that should humble us and, and kind of reorient us away from ourselves and outward to the body of Christ. Our, our goal can't be self-preservation. Our goal instead is is building up and encouraging the body of Christ. Second, we should speak highly of God's church, defend her honor in the public sphere. We should honor with our words the, the churches of God, even if they're not on our particular denominational team. For they too are part of the body of Christ. They supply to us what we're weak in. They teach us where we lack. Third, we should look for opportunities to bless and benefit other churches. Whether here in Cincinnati or across the globe, our, our local giving here on Sunday mornings should be done in such a way that it, that it kind of transcends our own needs and our own desires, instead aims to benefit the kingdom of Christ that is made visible in the churches of the nations. You know, ECC and uh, the American church in, in general is overflowing and resources overflowing. And, and what we do with this money and, and abundance really matters, according to Paul. With it, we are called to benefit our brothers and sisters who don't have it. And in doing so, Paul says our giving is suddenly no longer merely a, a calculated monetary decision. 
It becomes instead an, an act of grace that kind of binds us to Christians across the world and binds us in a way that displays a unity in the midst of diversity that the world can sit up and watch and see the gospel at work. So, yes, there are some trees in this forest that are about giving. And we'll look more at those next week. But don't miss the forest for the trees. May God guide ECC and guide each of us to give proof of our love in the presence of the churches of God. May he do that, and he will. Let's pray. Father God, we just ask that you would lift up in our hearts a single-minded focus on the glory of Christ and his bride. Would you do that through us? Would you use ECC and each one of us in a mighty way to display the gospel across this globe? Work powerfully through this church. Work through each one of us to manifest the gospel to make it known, and to give us an increasing zeal and love for your bride, the church. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.